Good evening and welcome to ACCA um, for the second um, of our future forums. Uh, I'm Jessie Bullivant, Acting Curator of Public Programs, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Boon Wurrung as the traditional owners and the sovereign custodians of the land on which we meet today, and along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and extend my respects to their elders past, present and future, and to all First Nations people joining us this evening. Currently, uh, ACCA is host to Greater Together, an exhibition that explores and acknowledges the inherent challenges of working together and the often utopian ideas of collectivity through eight distinct projects. Greater Together responds to our current period of uncertainty. Contemporary societal divisions are creating a real need to share knowledge and resources and to reassess ideas of production and organisation, professionally, socially and artistically. The Future Forum series seeks to extend these discussions around collaboration and cooperation by inviting speakers from a range of fields to speculate on how we might live, work and communicate with each other. In two weeks, uh, on August 23, uh, ACME Director Katrina Sedgwick will discuss the future of workplaces places for humans and non-humans. And in our final Future Forum on September 9, founding editor of the Saturday paper, Eric Jensen, will discuss technology and its impacts on individuals and the way we communicate. All future forums will be recorded and available on our website and bookings for future events can be made on ACCA's Eventbrite. Before I welcome our guest speaker tonight, I'd like to first thank the Saturday Paper, our media partner for the Future Forum series. Uh, so tonight we are very happy to be joined by architecture academic Jackie Alexander, who will speculate how we might better share space and resources. So Jackie Alexander is a lecturer in the Department of Architecture of Monash Art, Design and Architecture, MADA, Director of Alexander Sheridan Architecture and co-editor of Post magazine. Her current PhD research investigates the impact of the sharing economy on architecture and the city. So these forums are intended as a space for conversation and debate and invited speakers will ignite discussion for, uh, with a brief presentation in response to the theme, and then the floor will be opened to you, the audience. So please join me in welcoming Jackie Alexander. Thanks, Jessie. Um, and thanks, everyone, for coming along tonight. Um, I'd also like to pay my respects to the traditional um, owners of the land past and present um, on which we're gathered tonight. Um, it's a real pleasure to be invited along to Greater Together to um, present my research. And um, I've been invited because my current PhD research is looking at the architectural and urban implications of the sharing economy. So I thought I might start tonight just by providing a little bit of context about the sharing economy and its relationship to architecture and cities to date. And then I'll discuss three projects that I've been working on as part of the research. So since the turn of the 21st century, um, Web 2.0, also known as the social web, 
has delivered the democratisation of information and resources. And the first wave of sharing um, made possible by the internet was information and content sharing by non-profit sites um, like Wikipedia, Creative Commons, and later free but sponsored social media sites like Facebook. But since 2008 and the GFC, we've seen the explosion of the sharing economy, represented here by Airbnb and Uber, um, which has facilitated the sharing of services and resources for business purposes and comes with expectations of reciprocity and profit. These new kinds of digital media are influencing the way we organise, use, access and understand space and disrupting the spatial dynamics of the city. Sharing has the potential to affect all aspects of architectural practice, from architectural production with the new on-demand access to private property, new shared spatial types emerging, but also the reproduction, critique and dissemination of architecture with the relaxation of image licensing, the decline of the commercial architecture press and the Instagram revolution, and also procurement models with crowd-based capitalism and shared equity models demonstrated here by the Plus Pool in New York and the Commons. But my research to date has focused on the first two categories and looks at Airbnb as a primary case study given its overt spatial and urban consequences. So the accelerating impacts of the sharing economy on spaces and cities is worthy of our attention. Home sharing platforms like Airbnb have made it easier to access space um, through, very, th through establishing a framework um, that enables very short-term leases to be listed and approved almost immediately on an as-needs basis. Space sharing platforms are making private domestic space available for public use, but with some very strange consequences. As you can see here on the left, this is an 18-bedroom 18 bathroom house in Brunswick on an average suburban block um, and each room is listed separately on Airbnb. The host, when I conducted the research in 2016, had another 81 identifiable listings on Airbnb and you can start to see that the house is becoming a machine for maximising profit. On the other hand, Airbnb's reputation for facilitating unique experiences has also led to the privatisation of public space, exemplified here by Airbnb's temporary acquisition of the Parisian catacombs <laughs> for a Halloween event in 2016. Supporters and detractors are emerging from within the architecture industry. Jack Self, on the left, um, curated the, the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale in 2016 and envisages that the sharing economy will lead to a new lifestyle of leisure, free of the burden of housework, which will be outsourced via platforms like TaskRabbit, and the burden of mortgages, which will no longer be tenable, and possessions, which will be rented on demand. On the other hand, OMA on the right-hand side launched an app called Panda last year, which critiques the insecure work practices of the atomized gig economy that's been talked about 
quite a lot in the media, and turns the technology back on itself to connect workers in an effort to unionise them, providing access to support and legal services. Despite the positive narrative, the sharing economy is embroiled in global wealth inequality, encouraging a, a, a culture of housing as investment. The result is more property in the hands of the few and less space for the many. In the EU, there are more than 80 million people who share housing, and Airbnb has been blamed for contributing to the housing crisis by repurposing existing housing stock as hotels. Citizens and governments are divided, as you can see here, um, with cities like Berlin banning entire homes altogether, while Amsterdam, New York City and London capped rentals in 2016. Closer to home, though, the opposite is happening, with the state government and corporations forming partnerships with Airbnb, including Tourism Victoria and Qantas. And as you can see, Airbnb are responsible for 400 million a year in the Victorian economy. <clears throat> so with technology accelerating exponentially and the sharing economy responsible for generating a substantial percentage of GDP, as we've seen in the last slide, it's unlikely to be curtailed. So after Jack Self, my research takes the position that the future is here and we must design for it and asks, how can the architecture and urban design respond to the challenges and opportunities presented by these new kinds of sharing? And I propose that um, one way to advance the conversation is through leveraging lessons from the sharing economy and developing tactics of resistance in response to its challenges and spatial injustices. It's not all good and it's not all bad. So now I'd like to take you through three projects from my own practice that develop lessons or tactics regarding the sharing economy for architectural production, reproduction and procurement. The first project is called Supershared and was undertaken in collaboration with sibling architecture, drawing lessons from the sharing economy for space activation. Supershared was part of an exhibition called Occupied at the RMIT Design Hub last year, which considers new ways of reoccupying the city of the future in the face of increasing pressures like population growth, mass migration and dwindling resources. The project was a loft space. You can see that up there, probably best on the left. Um, and the idea behind it was to intensify the exhibition through unpredictable programming in an otherwise tightly curated show. The project presented the sharing economy as a possible solution for rewiring and repurposing existing infrastructure in the future. Supershared was available for public bookings for the duration of the show, and it borrowed from the logic of the temporary pop-up. It maximised activation through digital cross-programming Otherwise, um, in other words, it was listed on a number of different sharing economy uh, platforms simultaneously. So guests could book the space through a number of different platforms like Gumtree, Creative Spaces, Space Market and Couchsurfer. Each of these sites promotes different ways of inhabiting space. For example, Creative Spaces is geared towards work, 
whereas Couch Surfer is a, is a sort of um, homestay platform. And Gumtree is usually used for goods exchange. So we were interested in what might happen when these things collided. But as you might notice, um, each of these sites are relatively primitive first-generation peer-to-peer platforms. And one of the constraints of the project was that we couldn't profit from the space, being a public gallery. And it proved extremely difficult to identify platforms that would enable us to lease space for free. Um, pointing to the increasing corporatisation of the supposed grassroots sharing economy. During the course of the show, the Loft hosted dance rehearsals, meetings, workshops, art practice, classes, and was booked for private study and relaxation. As a strategy, it was successful in intensifying space, achieving a 72% occupancy rate over the course of the exhibition compared with an average occupancy rate of about 20% for entire Airbnb homes. But there were some pretty unexpected results. So the project was intended to be cheap and cheerful, applying the dexterity of the chairing economy to a purpose-built space. But in the process, it was subject to regulations that you would expect apply to a public space. For example, the ladder access that was meant to be cheap and simple, had to be redesigned to comply with the highest level of accessibility, which you can see here has resulted in a beautiful stair with tactile indicators and beefy balustrade. And an equivalent universally accessible space had to be made available within the building. Suffice to say that platforms like Airbnb are effectively making domestic space available for public use. But the lack of regulation around these spaces means that access is at the host's discretion. And from the outset, certain groups, like the disabled, are excluded. Perversely, it's precisely the ability to circumvent regulation that's enabled the sharing economy's innovation. So the next project that I'll show is um, a lesson from the sharing economy for architectural pre-production. And it's an experimental project um, that's mixed media that was undertaken in collaboration with Monash Art Projects. The project is situated in the context of the over-information and the truthiness, to quote Stephen Colbert, of the internet today and the spectacle of images that exist online. It exploits the virality of online content sharing and the potential of Creative Commons licensing to bring into the spotlight the serious urban implications for the trend for luxury apartments marketed to foreign investors. This Time Tomorrow was developed for the London Festival of Architecture in response to the theme Capital, which was the 2014 theme. It critiques the UK's capital gains tax exemptions, which has resulted in an oversupply of vacant luxury apartments in central London, while everyday citizens are forced out of the market. The project exists as a series of hyper-real images, drawings, a narrative, and a website as part of an online campaign and exhibition at the v &A. Images depict sacrosanct parts of London under development, commodifying the intrinsic qualities of the site for export. 
And you can see that here with Piccadilly Circus and the apartment clad in screens. In addition to these, a set of constructed selfies were produced, which haphazardly capture the developments in the background, um, which were shared by, via social media, validating their, their existence. The images um, draw on Super Studio and ArchiZoom's approach of a reductio ad absurdum. That means that it reveals the absurdity that would ensue if the commodification of housing was taken through to its logical conclusion. But unlike Super Studio's photo collage approach, new technology means that architectural fictions are no longer restricted to stylized abstract projections. Hyperreality is relatively easily achieved, and the project explores the potential and associated ethics with creating fictions that may be temporarily experienced as fact. <laughs> as you can see, that was the case with this uh, German art critic who published a scathing review of the development at Piccadilly Circus. <laughs> Between society's increasing expectations for on-demand solutions on the one hand and a growing impatience with the inaction of world leaders on the crises of our times on the other, this time tomorrow experiments with the utility of the near future parafiction over projected fictions as a mechanism to prompt audiences to act now. The project is intended as an agitprop exploring, uh, sorry, exploiting the virality of online content sharing and crowd-based logic of digital media. Okay, the final of the projects that I'll show today, you'll have to bear with me because it's a work in progress, um, but it's probably developed enough to give you a sense of the direction it's headed. So it demonstrates tactics against the sharing economy. And it's a kind of local constraining of the way that Airbnb has organically manifested here in Melbourne. It operates at the scale of the city, the house and the room. And the research, if you're interested, was published in Future West, the Journal of Australian Urbanism, um, if you'd like to know more. So there are three categories of space on Airbnb, if you're not familiar with the platform. There's the shared room, which is effectively a communally shared bedroom. The private room, um, which is a private space in a shared home. And the entire house, which doesn't involve any shared physical interaction at all, really. It's rather the space is divided by time, as in a timeshare model. The lack of regulation means that at both ends of the spectrum, properties are prone to exploitation. They're prone to exploitation by investors and entire homes have a tendency to be exploited as de facto hotels um, that sit vacant most of the time, compromising available housing stock. So the average occupancy rate for entire homes in Melbourne is just 22.6%. Um, uh, hosts can earn three times the price of rent and hosts often have multiple listings and this is the main type of listing that exists in Melbourne. At the other end of the spectrum we have shared rooms and shared rooms have been exposed throughout the research to have a tendency to manifest as de facto rooming houses or vertical slums, marketed primarily as longer term housing options to international students and migrants 
and others who may not qualify for longer term rental contracts. So these, um, these tenancies often have uh, overloading fire and hygiene compliance issues. And in Melbourne, um, these properties tend to exist in poorly designed apartment blocks with a particular hotspot in Spencer Street um, and several apartments with windowless uh, second bedrooms, presumably unmarketable as rental tenancies, fall into this category. Sorry, we'll go back here a sec. Um, for this reason, I've been interested in the potential of the underrepresented private room, which is the central category. And this usually takes the form of the um, spare bedroom in, an, in a share house, otherwise occupied by residents. And it's more likely to be genuinely peer-to-peer -peer and gets closer to Airbnb's alleged ambitions to bring tourists and locals closer together. If we look at existing patterns of Airbnb in Melbourne, we can see that entire homes tend to be concentrated in the centre of the city. highly concentrated homes and blue is um, cooling off. So um, we, can all, we already know that there's um, a high vacancy rate for these kinds of properties and they're unoccupied nearly 80% of the time. So the danger is they're taking available property off the market in the centre of town where rents are already pressured due to demand for accommodation close to work and transport. The pattern of private rooms in the centre is more diffuse around the middle suburbs, which you can see with the spotty blue quality on the map. And this is closer to the ambitions of Airbnb to enable access to the back regions of cities and makes better sense given our predilection for large houses in the suburbs but shrinking household sizes. But a closer look here reveals that the top 10 suburbs in Melbourne for Airbnb are all in the inner city with the exception of Brunswick, um, which is considered to be inner suburban. Crucially, they're all in close proximity to train and tram routes. I'll read those out to you in case you can't read that. So it's Melbourne, St Kilda, South Yarra, South Bank, Richmond, Brunswick, Fitzroy, Elwood, Carlton and South Melbourne. If we compare this pattern to London, we see that London's entire home and private room usage are both very diffuse. And I speculate that this is largely owing to their matrix public transport system, making it easy for tourists to get around the city via the tube. Interestingly, the new Melbourne Metro Tunnel due for completion in 2026 will set precedent for the first time for a matrix rail system in Melbourne and it's the first step in transforming the current radial clunky network. The proposed Airbnb rail link will tap into the lo this line. Hope you heard that. Everyone heard that? Cool. Um, and I've also shown the Roeville rail extension at the end of that um, line. So this presents a new opportunity to encourage Airbnb usage in the suburbs and disperse the positive effects of the tourist economy, particularly in the west, as tourists will be travelling through the west on their way to the city, 
and in the southeast, which is attractive due to its proximity to the bay. All of the suburbs identified here in red are situated in proximity to rail infrastructure and the convergence of train and tram lines. So for this study, which is speculative, um, I'm looking at West Footscray, um, and this is a test case identified as one of several suburbs that could potentially benefit from intensification. The project explores the ability for Airbnb to drive loose-fit infill development that would improve housing diversity more broadly and intensify an already culturally rich area as a precinct. Barclay Village, shown here at a larger scale and Um, has been earmarked in the Maribyrnong Structure Plan um, as a, a, a shopping strip that requires intensification and a, um, a plan to diversify businesses and make it more active at night is um, outlined in the plan. It's all very, already very multicultural, as you can see from the coloured um, legend here and reflected in the number of multicultural restaurants along the precinct. Um, but it's not very lively despite its um, rich multiculturalism. And there's a vacant site just behind um, Barclay Village in the residential area, indicated in red here and outlined in red here. So I've used this site as a test site um, to develop um, a new shared house typology. In this diagram you can see that the residential area is characterised by a preference for the hipped roof, but also there's an existing culture of outbuildings in this area of Footscray, um, identified here in black. And these two qualities um, are informing the party of the project, which is a small, designed for a small house, which is 100 square metres, and it's a courtyard model. Um, and the idea is the house is reconceptualised as a series of atomised rooms with two entrances. And the idea is that it can accommodate a family with um, a dependent, a guest and a host, or two small households um, together under the same roof. The project facilitates different size tenancies depending on the needs of both parties and more or less space can be rented out accordingly. And this diagram shows um, the space reconfigured as a one-bedroom apartment with a two-bedroom house and a shared courtyard or a one-bedroom house um, with a two-bedroom apartment and a shared courtyard. The atomised plan and dual entry democratises space and maintains privacy. Furniture elements mediate between host and guest and facilitate shared experiences at key moments like the barbecue, the staircase that permits entry to the upper level and a sliding joinery element. The home sharing or subletting arrangement is designed to fund subsequent development on the site, which would be small scale, and that's the next phase of the project. And over time, precedent is set for more loose fit infill development in the area by mum and dad developers that can cater to tourists and residents, solving a local problem of housing density and dispersing the positive effects of the tourist economy. 
So this project asks, if Airbnb is here to stay, can we leverage home sharing to help deliver better quality, more flexible and diverse housing options that benefit tourists and locals? Can home sharing help fund infill development to intensify the suburbs as an alternative to the current high density, high rise approach? So I'm gonna wrap up, I'm probably at time, but um, to conclude, I think sharing is fundamentally a great thing and we can be greater together. But what we're currently experiencing is a new era of sharing for business purposes. Less production and fewer resources has forced consumption to be reconceptualised to enable a high turnover of existing products and property is no exception. Sharing is fundamentally a spatial act. The sharing economy is a design problem and governments, planners and architects must recognise its implications and respond with canniness and imagination. Thanks. Happy to take questions. <laughs> Thank, thank you, Jackie. That was a really beautiful and insightful provocation around um, sharing. Um, I'd like to open up to the floor for questions, but I have one to, of my own to start with. Um, I guess you touched on um, one of the criticisms of the sharing economy um, is the lack of unionisation, I guess. And I guess my question is around uh, are people united or divided by the share economy? And maybe you can talk a little bit about Panda. Did you mention the, the union? Yeah. yeah. So I think um, the sharing economy is a, is a very positive narrative and there are many um, positive things that come out of the act of sharing. But as I tried to um, mention probably best in, this, in the second project, that sharing is prone to exploitation. And as soon as there's a commercial agenda behind sharing it, it um, is prone to exploitation. So the, the Panda app was developed by OMA last year. And it was really a way of sort of subverting digital technology and turning it back on itself to enable a kind of unionised approach to this, this um, phenomenon of um, atomised gig economy workers. And when we're sort of talking about gig economy workers, we're talking about people who feel like they're um, earning a bit more money on the side, but effectively what we're seeing happen is that um, these workers tend to be doing this sort of work full-time without contracts, without sick leave, without um, uh, entitlements effectively. Um, and they are working for the richest companies in the world, the global 1%. So the idea behind Panda was to unionise um, sharing economy workers and get them to unite, to um, be able to kind of lobby for these sorts of rights, which I think a lot of people are predicting will eventually um, be required. But at the moment, since the sharing economy is still very young and it's a disruptor, they're, they're not a you know, there's, there's no regulation around it. So probably one of the benefits, if any, of the increasing corporatisation of the sharing economy is that we'll see potentially those things happen in the future but for now, people are missing out. Uh, does anyone have any other questions? And I can bring you the microphone. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions. I found it really interesting, the images you used around um, the for and against 
for um, Airbnb. And um, the four were all middle-aged women um, who are, in fact, the fastest growing um, poverty area, I think, in society at the moment. And so maybe it's a cliche that, to me, I think one of the great empowerments of Airbnb is for women to be able to take those spaces and work outside the usual kind of societal structures to mm. be able to sort of set up your own fast earn economy at a kind of key time when you realise you don't have anything for your superannuation. Yeah. Um, so there's something around gender that I think is really interesting. Have you examined that at all? Um, I haven't specifically examined gender, but I have heard similar arguments, and I think it, yeah, that the sharing economy can be really empowering. I mean, sharing it by its nature is empowering, and whether it's self-organised or whether it's through a corporate company like Airbnb has its own, um, you know, empowering merits. Um, but I think, I think. Um, ultimately there are some structural problems with the model that exists for Airbnb. So I don't think that there's any problem. I, I think it's great that um, people, like you mentioned, single women are making money on the side, but there are all sorts of questions that come out of this when it becomes a professionalised industry and people are doing this full time. And I think that's really where the, the dangers start to exist. And so it, I think really those sorts of questions need to be addressed at a, at a higher level because the companies like Airbnb are, are really the richest companies in the world and they're taking a cut for all of these sorts of um, economies, which is sort of demonstrated in that first project where we saw the professionalisation of the sharing economy um, in Supershared when we were trying to find sites that wouldn't take a cut for, being, for allowing us to list a space for free, but they all, take a, they all skim the amount of profit that people are making. So I think... You know, it's, it is a fundamentally a business model, but um, I think regulation is sort of really the answer and it's going to take a while to get there. And so then my second question was about, I loved the uh, vision you had around Footscray and the, um, that idea of the house being built as a multi-purpose. Where does local council sit in that? Because that seems to be... You know, if I'm an investor and I want to go somewhere that's about that local mm. um, legislation and yeah. regulation. Well, it's an interesting question and actually the state government of Victoria has um, quite tight laws around things like granny flats, whereas if you compare it to the New South Wales legislation, there's actually an incentivised law around granny flats. So infill accommodation in New South Wales is... Um, definitely something that's on the agenda. So this sort of work, um, densifying through small fine grain additions to suburban um, residential stock. But it doesn't exist in Victoria at the moment and um, it's mainly due to the, the history of um, basically not knowing who, if, you, if you've got a granny flat out the back of your house, um, it needs to be a dependent and it needs to be removed at the, at the time at which the dependent moves on, whether that's your grandmother or whether that's your child. Um, so it's really difficult to make these sorts of things work. And part, I mean, this is obviously a speculative pro project that I've done, 
but we do need to, I think, start to manipulate those laws if we really want to see this sort of thing happen. Um, and people are doing it under the radar anyway. If you have a look at Airbnb in Brunswick, for example, there's heaps of granny flats that are listed, but you know, it's all operating illegally anyway. So, <laughs> so I think if we start to think about it um, strategically we, and as, at a policy level, we can start to try and change those laws. That's right. I liked the um, use of the word intensification as well in, in that idea of development. Um, yeah. Uh, do we have more questions over that side? Yeah. It's more just an inquiry, but I'm um, speaking about you know, local government and, and government regulation. You mentioned in Berlin that Airbnb or certain share houses have been banned or are not. Um, uh, permitted. Mm -hmm. now, I know Uber is also banned in Germany. Do you know what the background to that is? I mean, is it is it to do with the sort of philosophical pr principle around unionisation and industrial relations, or is it to do with experience that led to that outcome? It's actually mostly to do with this sort of thing, um, and it's it's happening globally. So I just sort of flipped through so back to these maps. Um, so we're basically finding around the world similar patterns where entire house listings on Airbnb are um, basically taking available housing stock off the market for residents and particularly in the centre of cities. So Amsterdam's a classic example actually and there was an animated GIF that was going viral on the internet a couple of weeks ago that some of you may have seen that showed um, Airbnb accommodation from 2008 to 2017 and just the explosion of the number of entire house listings in Amsterdam over that period. So I think really um, we're, we're sort of, you know, not adva as advanced as those cities at the moment. I think we're yet to see the worst of it, but London last year, for example, capped entire house listings for 90 days. So a lot of cities are putting limits on the amount of time that you can stay there because otherwise they're just being effectively rented out um, in a professional manner as holiday homes for the entire year, but with very low occupancy rates. So they're effectively vacant most of the time. And that's really what we need to try to avoid if we want to have lively cities. <laughs> Do we have more questions? Yeah. yeah, I guess I have a comment and a question. But I was um, reading in the news just a few days ago um, on some research that was done by journalists in Europe around Airbnb. Um, so it's really showing the relevance of, of the research. Um, but one point, as you said, was that um, Airbnb is taking the most of the center of the city. And so in Paris now they're looking at doing um, a permit for um, Airbnbs to exist. But there's a bit of, you know, skeptical um, sort of counter arguments around that. I was wondering if you could um, yeah, maybe comment on how you think that government has um, power and means and perhaps in the Australian context, how that would work? Um, I have heard of that happening around the world as well. For example, in, Berl uh, in Barcelona, you're required to be registered as a um, official sort of tourist 
provider in order to be able to use Airbnb. And it's similar in Japan as well at the moment, but at the moment there's a big debate happening in Japan because of the upcoming Olympics and the pressure to be able to house all of the tourists coming in um, as, as part of the Olympics. So, there's, so that's been a hot topic over there. Um, I think, as we sort of saw in some of these slides, you know, Airbnb is obviously responsible for a huge amount of GDP <laughs> in Australia. And I think coupled with um, the sort of booming construction industry, those two things are probably um, too valuable to sort of regulate too heavily um, and relegate back to the tourism industry. So it is, you know, it's, it's proving to be um, something that's, that, the, that the government, particularly at a state level, um, Tourism Victoria are backing. And, you know, you can also see um, Qantas frequent flyer points <laughs> with every Airbnb stay is now a thing. So, really, we have a lot of government support for Airbnb in Australia. And I don't really see that changing unless we start to see real problems occurring. Um, problems like overloading of apartments, problems like... Um, you know, we, we had the lacrosse building catch fire <laughs> a couple of years ago and we've seen the same thing with Grenfell Tower um, in London recently. And if you can imagine a situation where apartments are overloaded with people because they're structurally designed to house one or two people, not eight or nine, and there's a fire and you need egress immediately from a building, then you can imagine the kind of disasters that you might have on your hands. So I think... That sort of reform is not going to happen until um, we start to see some sort of serious effects because it's just too powerful for the economy at the moment. Do we have any other questions or comments? All right. Yes. You know, you can legislate for parts and buckets and you know, I think taking up what Katrina was saying, you know, with the real footstep model, which is a really nice model, um, to breathe architects, the commons, you know, I, I guess provoked new design legislation mm. um, by getting rid of car parks and other amenities which would normally be you know, required. Um, perhaps the kind of economy that Airbnb is injecting might allow for Mm. Definitely. I think so. And there has been, it's been a hot topic. So um, in the architecture industry in the last couple of years, we've seen um, architects really trying to push for better design around apartments. And that was passed earlier this year. Um, and, and that was really a kind of bottom-up movement from architects sort of pursuing that um, and so I think there is real value in these sort of specu speculative projects or projects that are unprecedented in, in playing a sort of advocacy role like that. And I do think it's policy, but I think, I mean, the, the point of that last slide, I think, was really that, you know, we sort of need to recognise that particularly Airbnb has such overt spatial consequences that we can't really just sit by and let it happen. As designers and planners and architects, um, we really need to kind of take a stake and look at this in more detail in order to 
trying to constrain it locally to get the best outcomes because I think it can be useful and that was the sort of the idea of the last project. Airbnb can be useful in solving local problems if it's done correctly and it's and the exploitation is limited but I think we really need to sort of take a stake in the conversation and try to direct that policy a little bit because at the moment I think it's sort of sidelined as just sort of digital media and dis and a disruptor and people don't people don't understand that it can be controlled and it can be legislated to, to develop good positive outcomes for everyone. I think it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> I actually ran a studio at Monash Uni last year and a couple of my students designed a hotel for locals, <laughs> which was effectively a hotel for um, people that had been, that wanted to rent their entire home on Airbnb <laughs> because they wanted to um, basically earn three times the amount of rent that <laughs> and uh, needed a temporary place to stay. So it was a bit tongue in cheek, but um, I think, you know, we are seeing real effects in terms of hotels and I recently came back from Italy um, and I noticed in Rome that the hotel that I was staying in actually had a number of rooms that were being leased as workspaces. So I think at the same time hotels are having to be innovative about how they reinvent themselves and some of them are, um, you know, people say that increased competition helps reform um, design often. So. A lot of hotels are actually picking up their game and trying to do better to compete in the market or offer something different. Um, but then I think a lot of hotels as well are starting to re repurpose as well, which is a kind of interesting inversion of the sort of repurposing of homes as hotels. So it goes both ways. Perhaps if we don't have any more questions, um, you can join me in thanking um, Jackie Alexander. Thank you. Thank you. Um, please sign up to our mailing list or follow us on um, social media to receive updates about our upcoming programs or there's a flyer on the front desk with our public programs. Thank you. Thank you.